0: and welcome back to Cooking the Books, the podcast which looks at the stories behind the food from our favourite A-list of food writers. I'm Julie Smith and I'm linking the thinking about what we eat and who we are to create a deeper connection with food. This week I'm remembering the late, great Anthony Bourdain, surely the most exciting storyteller in food who shocked the world by taking his own life in 2018. His assistant, co-author, lieutenant and gatekeeper is Laurie Wolliver, who had just begun to put together their next book, a travel guide to some of Bourdain's favourite places in the world.
1: He wasn't really about cool for cool's sake, as much as that might be attributed to him and as much as people might want that to be the case, obscurity wasn't really its own reward for him. If he loved something, it didn't matter if it was very, very well known and the top of everyone's lists for 20 years, or if it was uh, a, a hole in the wall, it was just what resonated with him.
0: As she talks through her four food moments from the book that it became, we journey back into the mind of a man who had so much to say about food and the world.
1: We began with how
0: Laurie wrote a book by Bourdain without him.
1: So the book World Travel is about a specific perspective on many, many parts of the world as seen through the eyes of Anthony Bourdain, or Tony, as he liked to be called, and as you'll no doubt hear me calling him throughout this conversation. Uh, It is not a completely comprehensive look at the world. He went to many, many, many places. This is about a hundred places that he particularly loved and particularly had things to say about and things to recommend that a traveler uh, check out if they decide to go to those places.
0: Yeah, and it came out of just a one hour conversation, the two of you just riffing about ideas, him just a stream of consciousness, free association, Mm -hmm. you managed to record it all. And unfortunately, you you didn't have time to write it together because he died. That's correct.
1: Yeah, it's It was not at all uh, our intention, obviously, to to do it this way, the way that that the book ultimately got finished. Uh, I I very much saw it as the next full collaboration, the first one being our cookbook, Appetites. Uh, But we did have this, this one very useful conversation that allowed me to have a blueprint to what the book would contain and how it would feel, and a lot of the specifics, and I've tried very hard to to stick to that blueprint because that was what Tony wanted yeah,
0: now you've been writing books with him since two thousand and two, so you would you call yourself a ghostwriter?
1: I don't know that I considered myself a ghostwriter or that he considered me a ghostwriter, but you know his voice and his writing skill, obviously those things were very, very strong, and he wasn't someone that you would think was in need of a voice of a ghostwriter. Uh, but I would say I was sort of a support writer. Uh, for instance, in our in our cookbook appetites, there are head notes for every recipe. I wrote all of them at first and then gave them to him. He rewrote some of them. He left some of them intact. And uh, to this day, I look at them, and I really don't remember which ones I wrote and which ones he wrote. I, you know, I was very able to channel his voice and understand the way that he might express something. But he always had his own spin on it. Even if I thought I was getting very, very close to his voice, he would sometimes take it in a completely different direction. So I would say we were uh, writing collaborators, and as a very busy person, he sometimes needed Uh, that help with, uh, with writing with books or with television, he had a lot of uh, great people around him helping him.
0: Yeah, but you were also his assistant. I mean, on a day to day basis, you were the the person who grounded him, you were the person who organized everything for him. I mean, even his jiu jitsu classes when he was (laughs) traveling around the world, you know, Uh, he so you got to know him incredibly well, um, Mm -hmm. even though a lot of that was done virtually, but you got inside his mind very well, didn't you?
1: I think so. Uh, as it turns out, I you know everyone everyone is probably more the, of a mystery than we realize. But yes, I, I did. At least as far as on the written page, I felt like I really understood where he was going, what he wanted to say. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say I, I I think I knew him pretty well. Uh, but everyone's a mystery.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, like everybody, I loved Bourdain. I loved his writing. I loved his wit and his wisdom. I loved his social conscience. I loved his, the way that he politicised his travelling and the, the role of food in understanding people. Um, but I have to say, of course, I was looking through those pages, trying to understand, to get a grip, on what happened to him, and to try and understand what was going on in his mind um, i didn't get that i didn't get that the the book is a, a, is a, a is a big handful of his musings, his writings, his notes that you have compiled to create mm-hmm. a travel guide. Mm-hmm. did you feel? that you had any responsibility after his death to convey some sense of who he was and what he was thinking uh, for all those people like me who wanted so
1: desperately to know well I will say that this book the the responsibility I felt with this book world travel was to in some ways to try and help secure his legacy as someone who traveled extensively who uh had an open mind everywhere that he went, who was able to kind of find the best of the best and to accept things as they were at the same time, to be very open to what other people were offering to him, and to give a little bit of uh, of, of advice. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many times people would reach out and say, I'm going to XYZ Place Uh, can you ask Tony what I should do? And I myself would ask him sometimes, uh, and I'm going to Colombia, what did you love in Cartagena? And he would tell me. Uh, So this is, in a way, this particular book is, that is the purpose for that. And that was the responsibility that I felt in, in finishing it.
0: Your four food moments will take us through some of those places that he talked about. But let's just talk a little bit more about who he was. He was a chef who then became a TV personality. We know because he told us that he hated TV, but he also was a fabulous writer. I mean, Kitchen Confidential was an explosive book that really rocked the food world. And he was a rock and roll food genius, wasn't he? And that's what people loved about him. He was irreverent. He said exactly
1: what he felt. How was it working with him? Working with him was probably not what most people would expect. Uh, and and I only have my own experience. I know the people that worked with him on television had probably this experience that is closer to what the fantasy might be in terms of being out in the world more often and uh, you know experiencing the highs and lows and the excitement and the danger and the hilarity. Uh, for me, working with Tony was very much uh, it, it felt like the best parts of a mentorship and a writing partnership and just a very sort of quietly respectful, uh, you know, boss and employee relationship. He was for all of his brashness on camera and his hilarity and his way with words on the written page and on the screen, he was in many ways, a very quiet, very shy, reserved person at moments. And, uh, I think I was able to, I, I was very careful not to ask of him the things that people might ask of him that see him on the street or that that, that wanted him to sort of be that guy, that character. Uh, he was a you know tremendously generous boss. Uh, he was very, very appreciative of the work that I did for him, and that is you know that has not always been my experience with my working life. Uh, I, I felt. Although it was a slight ego adjustment for me to, to go to be an assistant after working in magazines, I felt I could do this job forever. I could be seventy five years old, and if Tony's still around, I, I will still be here to do to make his restaurant reservations and his plane trips and make sure he gets to the doctor. I just really, uh, you know, I loved him, I, and I I and and I. It was my pleasure to to be able to support him and make his life a little bit easier.
0: Yeah. And as I often find amongst particularly chefs, they are very introverted, actually, but the television Mm. platform allows them to be somebody else. It's almost like they perform a sense of themselves that Mm. allows them to be a completely different person in their own world. Um, I know that he battled a lot with drugs and depression all his life. And we nobody will ever know what was going through his head at that particular time. But did you get a sense in 2018, as you were kind of penning this, these thoughts first together, that, that he was mentally ill in any way?
1: No, uh, you know, Tony was, for all of the things that he shared about himself, Kitchen Confidential being the, the biggest example, and also some of the things that he would say in his voiceovers on television and the things that he wrote after Kitchen confidential for all of that which he shared with the world, he was also a very, very private person. And uh, so as much as he was upfront about having his highs and lows and sometimes you know getting knocked off his pedestal by small things, he, there was a face that he gave to the world that uh, that allowed him to, to get out there, travel so much and, and share so much of his experience with the world. And, and that was really what I was working with. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Let's start going through the book, through your food moments. Take us to Leon. Why did you choose this particular food moment?
1: Well, Tony loved Lyon so much. He made a beautiful episode of Parts Unknown in 2014 with uh, Chef Daniel Boulou, who is from Lyon, and his family are still there. Uh, And he also met up with the writer Bill Buford, who was at the time living in Lyon with his family, finishing up his book Dirt, which came out uh, earlier this, or I guess in in 2020. Uh, So... This trip to Lyon was, for Tony, a kind of absolute pilgrimage to a part of France that he hadn't spent any time in, but was such a rich uh, resource of, of of all of the chefs, all of the old way French chefs that he admired and tried to emulate, especially early on in his career. Uh, they spent quite a bit of time with Paul Bocuse. It was just extraordinarily special, and I, I really wanted to see it myself and, and see what it was that, that drew Tony there, and to understand this level of tradition, you know, different from Marseille or Paris or any place else in France that he or I had been, this, this bone-deep tradition where you can go to any number of bistros or bouchons and the menus are more or less the same and nobody has a problem with that it's 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 what it's what we eat you know we being the Lyonnaise. and uh, it was it was an for me it was an extraordinary experience and i know when tony went it was incredibly emotional and incredibly uh uh fulfilling
0: yeah. I mean, of course, Lyon is the, sort of the, one of the major centres of haute cuisine in, in, in France. And by the time he was making Parts Unknown for CNN, he was talking very much about leaving all that behind. He'd had enough of the haute cuisine and he was much more attracted to the food of the streets. And that's how a lot of people kind of remember him. That first food moment of yours kind of grounds him. Was that one of the reasons why you chose it?
1: Yeah, what I think of of the travel that Tony did that was absolutely food focused and the reason for being there was the food and not say the wildlife or the politics or uh anything else that might have drawn Tony to a place. Leon really is right up there at the top. Uh it was it was he was so interested in the deepness of the culture, the tradition, and and how much pleasure the Lyonnais take in everything—from school lunch and a simple uh, a cup of coffee to a beautiful meal at Paul Bocuse with all of the ancient classics that he that he enjoyed on camera with Paul Bocuse, the hunting. Uh, I, yeah, it's the the idea that the culture absolutely revolves around food is uh just it's just the it 's quintessentially tony that that experience
0: yeah I think that bill buford kind of sums that up in his essay in the book is has a number of different essays by his friends and his colleagues and members of his family mm-hmm. and Bill Buford writes about Leon and he mentions that about the school food and he, he mentions that his son learns how to eat and how to eat as a sort of a well again it's another performance isn't it it's a it's a, a, a ritual that is absolutely singular to to the French and to is, is the inroad to enjoying food. Interestingly, your second food moment takes us to London, but again to the kind of places where I wouldn't have thought he'd find the most fun. I mean St. John is one of the best restaurants in London, and Fergus Henderson absolutely is the king of nose to tail and all the stuff that Tony was really into. But I would have thought that he'd go round the corner to Trisha's, which he does talk about in the book, but what was he like? What was he after? How did he find the underbelly?
1: Well, I think Trisha's probably represents the uh, as much of the underbelly as he was willing to be public about. <laughs> and this is he a club a in Soho, in, we should say. Yes, he had a great time in in, in London. I think he uh, he enjoyed the drinking culture of London, shall we say? Uh, and he did make it an effort every time he was in London to go back to St. John at least once. Um, And someone asked me a similar question about Tokyo. You know, why does he go back to some of these places that are very, very well known? He's not showing us anything that we don't know. And my answer then and and now is he wasn't really about cool for cool's sake, as much as that might be attributed to him. And as much as people might want that to be the case... Uh, he wasn't obscurity wasn't really its own reward for him. If he loved something, it didn't matter if it was very, very well known and the top of everyone's lists for twenty years or if it was uh, a, a hole in the wall. It was just what resonated with him. and And that food at St. John uh, year after year, consistently just made him feel happy. And uh, the fact that Fergus was doing that before everyone else. And this, this was stuff that Tony grew up with and Tony cooked at Leal in New York. It it resonated with him in a way that he didn't have to move on from after years and years of seeing the rest of the world. It was something, it was a grounding experience in a way to come back and have that, that bone marrow salad and the steak and kidney pie and the homey desserts and the things that, that really didn't change too much uh, year in, year out. But that being said, he loved a pub. He loved a good late night club. Uh, there's definitely a number of, of hangover scenes in, in all of Tony's uh, London episodes. And, yeah, and he had a lot of great friends there who knew how to have a good time. So it, it was a city that he just adored. Yeah.
0: Off to Vietnam next, of course. Um, somehow, Vietnam seems to have a major connection with him. Is that true? Is that just my perception? Or did he really have a thing for Vietnam?
1: You're absolutely right. He did, and he was, he was effusive in his love for Vietnam. It was not the first place he ever went in Asia, but it was the first, his first Southeast Asia destination. And he talks often about this was the place that sort of ruined him for his old life, to, to be there and to see and to smell and to hear everything that was so different from the life that he knew in New York, and even the relatively uh, kind of buttoned up, uh, westernized Asia that he fell in love with in Japan, it just, I think going to Vietnam for the first time was a real turning point for Tony, where I think he understood that there was no going back to just being a cook and a chef in New York and, and maybe writing a book every once in a while, That that this country that he had already read so much about and was so fascinated by because of his interest in uh, American history, it was, it was, uh, it was a gateway to, to understanding that he his next purpose was to explore the world. He loved the food. He loved to ride a scooter. Uh, my, my first trip with Tony and the television crew was to Hue, Vietnam, in 2014. And when we got there, he said okay, anytime that they're not shooting me for the show and I'm on a scooter, you're welcome to ride along with me. And at first I was a little nervous. I was a a mother of a young child, and I just didn't really know if I wanted to do that. And it it just took one time for me to just fall in love with that experience. I mean, you're only going 15, 20 miles an hour. Uh, We had helmets on, and he was very, very skilled and confident at riding the scooter through I don't know if you've seen or experienced this, the waves of people and scooters and cars and bicycles and in some cases animals and big vans all converging onto these boulevards in, in Vietnam. If you sort of it's a ballet and you have to sort of have this confidence and he had it and it was just such a what a thrill to, what to be a thrill my goodness <laughs> on the back of a scooter through
0: Vietnam with Bourdain mm-hmm. amazing mm-hmm. absolutely amazing the Obama moment did you
1: set that up or was it the tv crew That was not me. Uh, And in fact, that was something that Tony held very, very close to the vest. Uh, I I think we were in Japan in 2016. That was the trip that I had chosen that year. And he said, don't tell anybody. But in about two months, I'm going to go to Vietnam and interview Obama. And I thought, oh, if I had known, I would have waited and gone back to Vietnam for that. But of course, you know, he had they, and it, of course, with a with a world leader, you never really know if it's going to happen until ten minutes before it happens. So it was an incredibly complex situation, as you can imagine.
0: Yeah, but he sits with Obama in a little cafe, and he eats noodle soup with him. Mm -hmm. and they talk Mm -hmm. about the state of the world and Mm -hmm. they drink beer and the the bill came to about six dollars and and it was amazing and what I really loved about that and I wonder if this is how much CNN had to do with this I wonder if it was Mm -hmm. a perfect meeting of minds or whether CNN encouraged that more sort of the curious investigative
1: journalist
0: that was sleeping inside the chef
1: I don't know that it changed the way that he looked at the world. It would be hard for me to to say with any certainty, but what I think it did is it opened up a lot more of the world to him because of the respectability of CNN around the world, because of the kind of uh, connections and relationships that they had all over the world, and because of the security, frankly, in some cases, that they could provide to him and his crew – much more of the world opened up to them. I think that in my conversations with uh, his colleagues at CNN, they were very eager to let him be himself and and do what he did well and what had already served him so well. I don't think there was any mandate to be more serious or or to be particularly more journalistic. He would always say, I'm not a journalist, although some would argue that that he absolutely was. I think he was very... He very much respected the journalism that CNN did, and I think he always wanted to make sure to separate himself and what he did. He called himself a storyteller. And so, yes, it was a wonderful opportunity that CNN gave him to tell his stories uh, in in a way, in a thoughtful way that would, if it was appropriate, pull in politics. And if not, sometimes it was just a hedonistic romp through southern Italy or Lyon or other places. So it was a a tremendous partnership. Yeah. And sometimes
0: in the same sentence, Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just thinking back to that when he's sitting with Obama and he, they're enjoying noodles and everybody around them is eating noodles too. And he then asks about if it's going to be all right, if the world's going to be okay. And he's mm-hmm. the father of a young child, and he says so. And he says, and he's kind of pleading with Obama, he's sort of saying, you know, tell me it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. And that really broke my heart, actually, considering, you know, mm-hmm. w- what happened very shortly after that. And I mm-hmm. wondered if he, if he was, um, he would have seen so much about of the world. Was he an optimist or a pessimist?
1: I think that he was, I think that he was both. I think he was quite wary uh, and, and always ready to, to accept the worst. But I think he also had a beautiful optimism. I think any time you uh, take the, the grand leap of, for instance, having a child, uh, you know, embarking in a, in a committed relationship, I think you have to have optimism. Uh, any time you get on a, an airplane frankly, you know, the odds are you're going to survive. But I I think everything that he did from the point where he broke through with Kitchen Confidential, and left his old life behind and said, Well, let's see, you know, life is short, let's see what it has to offer me. That's a wonderful example of of optimism, even in someone who, I think, made his brand out of being cynical and and pessimistic.
0: Yeah. Yeah let's go home to New Jersey this is where he came from I asked you you -hmm. know whether he was a Bourdain or a Bourdain and you said he was New Jersey Bourdain his Mm -hmm. grandmother though was French she would have been a Bourdain but he was absolutely Mm -hmm. from New Jersey you chose this as your fourth
1: food moment um hot dogs yes (laughs) why (laughs) There is a place in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is just across the bridge from Manhattan called Hiram's Road Stand. It's been there for decades, and it's a place that Tony went with his family growing up. It was a tradition, and uh, he took his own daughter there many, many times. It is absolutely unpretentious, and just come as you are. Uh, I think I had said it's it's a draw it's a drive-in kind of place. It's not a there aren't car hops, but it is. It, people mostly eat in their cars or eat outdoors. There's no uh, real indoor dining, uh, and it's the thing that they're really well known for is this hot dog called the Ripper, that is deep fried just a little bit longer so that it it kind of explodes on itself and becomes this spiral, crispy edged juicy in the middle, just indescribably delicious thing. Uh, They they do onion rings that are perfect. They have fountain sodas. You can get a beer if that's what you're interested in. They have burgers and fries. It's just quintessentially American, quintessentially New Jersey. And again, a place that Tony loved. And even as it became more and more well-known, in part because he shone a light on it, it didn't stop him from loving it and going there, and uh, so. And I, I, I love it. I mean, that kind of food I don't eat all the time, but when I do, ooh, that's it's the gold standard. What's it like for you,
0: Laurie? You're the sole author of, of this. I mean, his mm-hmm. name is all over it, but mm-hmm. you're the one doing the tours, and everybody wants to talk about Tony Bourdain. Where are you in
1: that as the co-author? How does it feel? Well, as you can imagine, it's tremendously bittersweet. Uh, the last time that Tony and I had a book out, of course, he was around, and he was the the guy out front uh, as as much work as I did on the cookbook, and as much as I felt very possessive of that book, it, it was to the world 's eye that was tony 's book, and so I learned a lot about what it means to to work behind the scenes and to manage and soothe one 's own ego when you 're not the celebrity. Uh, and I very much wish that I was back in that position now. It is, it is you the tremendous shoes to fill. And I don't even, I don't have any aspiration to fill them. And I don't think anyone can fill them. I think um, lots and lots of people came rushing forth very quickly after he died, much too quickly for my taste, to say, I want to be the next Bourdain or I want to be the Bourdain of XYZ. And it's just not. Possible. He was a singular person with his own charisma, his own force field. Uh, So for me, I want to make sure that I am representing him in the best way possible, that I'm sharing with readers the best of Tony. I'm trying to help them find the information that he might otherwise have been giving to them were he still around. I, I, I'm I definitely still living in the service of Tony. Uh, what comes after this period is a great question. I am a writer for hire. <laughs> That's what a lot of food writers do.
0: They write with other people. It's mm-hmm. very common and it's a wonderful job to do. You get right mm-hmm. under the skin of people, you get their voice in your ear and it's a glorious job. I've, I've done a few of them on myself as well. Tell us a little bit more, if you can, about the next book and what you hope to achieve from that, that you weren't able to, because there was so much missing. You only have the the, the tiniest little glimpses of his thoughts mm-hmm. and, of course, his memories mm-hmm. to, to play with in this book. What, what can you do with the next book?
1: So the next book, which will be coming out in, uh, at least in the US uh, and probably elsewhere, In October of 2021. uh, It's called Bourdain, the Oral Biography. And it is about, it's the culmination of about 100 interviews that I did with people from all aspects of his life, from his late mother, his brother, his daughter, his first wife, uh, kitchen colleagues from the 1980s and 90s, Television colleagues, publishing colleagues, friends, confidants, a real range of people, uh, each one of them having something new and interesting to say to teach me about Tony, somebody that I thought I knew everything about. So that in a nutshell is 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 what the next book uh, is is about and. It's yeah, it's it's it shades in Tony's story in a way. He he was very good at telling his own story, but that was his version of his story. And it was a curated version meant to be entertaining. Uh, And this is this is some of some of the rest of of who he was from a very young age, what motivated him and uh, how he lived his life.
0: Thanks for listening. You can buy World Travel, an irreverent guide by Anthony Bourdain and Laurie Wooliver, and all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at juliesmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week with Rob Howell of Root, one of the stars of Bristol's growing food scene.